0: All right, as promised, the top of the hour. We're going to have some old friends join us uh, on today's program, and at this point, we're going to bring one on. That would be James Israel, the founder and editor of the Humor Times. The Times, yesterday on April Fool's Day, appropriately enough, celebrated an anniversary. It's 24th, and I guess this issue is a special one, and to fill us in the details, we'd like to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, James Israel.
1: All right, hello, for having me
0: glad to do it um let's what's what's the deal this is twenty four years now, and this issue is is going back to the old style uh newsstand type one I guess
1: well uh, you mean as far as being free yeah uh, out there on the on the stands yeah um, we are making an effort to uh, to do that again we we switched to a subscription only a few years ago because we had to financially yeah. With the uh, downturn, we lost a lot of local advertisers, and um, we couldn't uh, survive as a free paper at that point. So we've done pretty good as a subscription paper. We have uh, subscribers all over the country, in fact, Um, so we want to continue with that. But we want to put out uh, more uh, more free copies again like the old days, and uh, this issue uh, has a, a lot of them out there.
0: Well, it was give people a chance to go snag one and get people, I'm sure a lot of cases are not familiar with the paper, newcomers to town, new students here at the university, things like that, so uh, it's a good outreach.
1: Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's been a great ride, and there's, you know, never any lack of, uh, of things to satirize, of course, <laughs> in politics, especially in uh, the USA these days, so... Uh, yeah. Well, I hope, you, you... Uh, hope people will pick it up, check it out. Go to our website to uh, humortimes.com. That's going gangbusters. In fact, um one of our writers on the site, Paul Lander was just named uh Irma Bombeck humor writer of the month. Oh. For for his column that he does. It's uh it's called uh Ripping the Headlines Today. It's a really good little column. He just takes a headline and uh says something funny about it and then goes on to another headline it's worth checking out you just go to our uh, humortimes.com. there's a little article about his uh, award and then also his columns are all up there too
0: paul lander headlines indonesian police burn 3.3 tons of weed get entire town high (laughs) yeah and of course like you you bring the public will durst uh, on a regular basis so one of our favorite guys
1: Yes indeed,
0: yeah, and you've got argus Hamilton, jim hightower uh you've got you've got uh, just you've got an embarrassment of riches here, riches here james
1: yeah uh besides the columnists, we got uh fake news, uh kind of like the onion, only it's our our own stuff um funny videos on the website uh cartoons uh, political cartoons, of course, every issue of the uh humor times features. Uh, edit, editorial cartoons arranged by subject, and then they're uh, they're all connected by a narrative. So it kind of makes a uh, a news story out of out of a page of cartoons. And uh, so that's always been our our goal from the beginning was to kind of give you the news in in cartoon style.
0: I should ask you you did, you did a column about the fact that in America people get their more news from fake news. I mean, with the with the Daily Show and such things. And you guys are right right in the middle of that.
1: Well, you know it's so depressing just uh, you know to to read the real news, especially <laughs> seems like more more and more so so uh, you know you need some comic relief and uh, it's so absurd some of the stuff that gets uh, that that passes as politics that um, you know it's 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 not hard to make fun of it
0: you, you have to laugh sometimes you have to. I want to note also you've got you've got movie reviews here by Gary Chu. Gary's been on our show on on many an occasion, and that's that's a welcome thing to have too.
1: Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, if there's any um, cartoonists aspiring cartoonists out there, we have um, a feature on the on the website where you can upload cartoons. It's for amateur cartoonists. You know, they can get their stuff up there. Uh, of course, we uh, we have to look at it before it actually gets published, but um, for the most part, anything you put up there will, will get uh, get published, and so you can send all your friends to see it on the website. And it's a good way to get a little exposure for, uh, for your work.
0: And you, we should note, too, you're a musician, and you do make regular yeah. appearances locally. People may want to hook up uh, with what you're doing in that regard also, I imagine.
1: Indeed. I got uh, uh, my little uh, uh, acoustic combo is going to play at uh, Earth Day in Sacramento. Uh, that's over at the Southside Park, uh, April 19th. So we'll be there for that. Uh, I'll have a Humor Times booth there as well. So, uh, and then there's also a thing called Picnic in the Park at the McClatchy Park, coming up May 2nd. We're gonna, I'm gonna play there. And oh, hey, I may as well mention this. Um, we're helping to organize the uh, sac- what's called the Sacramento Rolling Bicycle Music Festival. Um, in fact, there's a back cover ad on this issue about it.
0: Um, okay. So
1: if you've got any cyclists out there that uh, listen to the program, and since you're in Davis, there's probably a lot of them.
0: <laughs> yes, indeed.
1: <laughs> um, we're, uh, what what happens is uh, these musicians, uh, it's organized by um, the band Klandyken, and uh, they've done this in other places, a lot of other places. Uh, they'll uh, bike a bunch of music gear from place to place, set up, and then power it with bicycles. So they power the speakers with bicycles. People are really are pedaling along, yeah, uh, while they play. And it's, it's real, a real nice vibe, uh, real positive, and it's just to celebrate uh, bicycling and to encourage it. Anyway, so this event is gonna happen over several days in the first week of May uh, at different locations. And uh, one of them is at the Capitol uh, grounds, uh, not right by the building. It's over in the corner at 15th and Inn. And uh, so we're going to be playing there on uh, Tuesday, May 5th.
0: Cinco de Mayo. uh,
1: Noon noon to three. Yeah, Cinco de Mayo. That's right.
0: Good deal. All right, Humortimes.com. People are going to want to check that out and check out some of these events. And James, next time uh, Durst comes to town, let's all get together.
1: Sounds good.
0: All right. Keep up the good work, my friend.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Let's talk about some science topics because we just love science topics. And we expect sometime in the weeks to come to do a little bit of collaboration with our good pals over at This Week in Science hopefully in conjunction with taking a look at what the heck's going on with the asteroid series. We're about to get a really close look at the sunlit side. I mean, it's one thing to have a, an orbiting uh, spacecraft next to an object, but if you're in the dark, <laughs> it makes it hard to see stuff. Well, let's go to our old standby, New Scientist magazine, which we devour on a weekly basis for you, dear listener. The March 28th issue has a one-minute interview with someone called Asifa Majid who is, in fact, a professor at Radboud University in the Netherlands, where she explores the nature of categories and concepts in language, including cross-cultural differences in odor perception. I want to quote from this piece. Asked, why study the language of olfaction? Professor Majid said, "...there are centuries-old ideas that humans have evolved to be visual or auditory creatures, and that our senses of smell, taste, and touch just aren't as important anymore." We're looking to see whether that's reflected in different languages as well. Asked, are there languages which excel at describing smells?" She responded, speakers of the Aislinn language found throughout the Malay Peninsula, that's the spit of land hanging below Thailand, for those of you geographically challenged, are particularly good at expressing olfactory experiences. For this group, for example, who live a hunt, for the Jahai group, She notes, who live a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, we found that smell was as easy to talk about as color, unlike in English. Asked how many smell words do the Jahai use, she said they have about 12 that describe specific smell characteristics. These are words that can only be used for smells. For example, the term pronounced pleng is used for fresh blood, raw meat, mud, stagnant water, fresh fish, otters, and some species of toad. She adds, these are different kinds of objects, but there seems to be a smelly quality common to them. Now, this is kind of a foreign concept for us in English. The magazine asked her, what's a good smell-specific word in English? She said, well, a term in English that really picks up on a specific kind of smell quality is musty. Something like when you open a door that's been closed a long time or maybe the smell of old books. Asked the question, how good are English speakers at articulating what they smell? She responded, we gave Jahai speakers and English speakers the same smell and asked them to describe it. Jahai speakers were quick and consistent. With English speakers, nearly everybody gave a different and lengthy description of the same smell. For the smell of cinnamon, for example, one participant went on and on like, I don't know how to say it, and and I can't get the word, and like that chewing gum smell, and finally big red gum. It was hard for most English speakers to identify even the common smell of cinnamon. What blows my mind about this is that presented with different smells, these speakers, the Jahai speakers, were quick and consistent. They all described it the same way. And this opens up a question, which I'm unfortunately not qualified to answer, about if you don't have the words in your language, do you just simply not think in those terms? I think in part the answer has to be yes. I mean, admittedly, these people that are hunter-gatherers out in the Malay Peninsula must be better attuned to their environment than, you know, somebody buying hot dogs in Manhattan. But it is fascinating to imagine that once they have a specific word and they really know how to identify it, they can think about things in a much more exact fashion than we can. I guess it's kind of analogous to the story of the... uh, Inuit up in Alaska having like 47 different words for types of ice and snow, we all understand it would make sense that they would have such a vivid language because of the different conditions they live with every day, but boy, when they're describing ice and snow, you got to say they're going to be a lot better at it than we are. And if you have a really impoverished language for describing something, doesn't that mean that your whole thought process is bound to be a bit impoverished as well? Well, has to be, doesn't it? And in fact, this takes me back to my college days here at UCD, when I think at some point I studied the, uh, the essay, Politics in the English Language, by George Orwell, where he postulated how if you deliberately dumb down a language, people simply won't be able to express themselves or think clearly. If this is your field of expertise, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We would like to hear from you. All right, I've got three other science pieces which would come under the category of, wow, Really? Starting with this item from the science and technology section of The Economist, March 14th issue. And by the way, The Economist is very pro-GMO. And we've talked about this before. They tend to miss the point on the real issue, which we will get to a little bit later when we talk about Roundup now being recognized as possibly carcinogenic. But but to quote from the piece, opponents of genetically modified crops often complain that moving genes between species is unnatural. Leaving aside the fact that the whole of agriculture is unnatural, this is still an odd worry. It has been known for a while that some genes move from one species to another given the chance, in a process called horizontal gene transfer. Genes for antibiotic resistance, for example, swap freely between species of bacteria. Only recently, though, has it become clear just how widespread such natural transgenetics is. What was once regarded as the peculiarity of lesser organisms has now been found to be true in human beings. They note how researchers at Cambridge have been looking into this and just published some results in Genome Biology. And doggone, and I unfortunately let my subscription to Genome Biology lapse last month. But they note that human beings have at least 145 genes picked up from other species by our forebears. Notes the magazine. Admittedly, that is less than 1% of the 20,000 or so humans have in our total, but it might surprise many people, and I would dare say will surprise many people, to know that they are part bacterium, part fungus, and part algae. Now, the researchers came to this conclusion by looking at databases of genetic materials from fruit flies, nematode worms, and primates. And the results from all three groups suggest that natural transgenics is ubiquitous. Now, curiously, in order to avoid getting bogged down in all the billions of base pairs they'd have to look at, the scientists took a look at messenger RNA. This is the type set of instructions, in essence, that our DNA makes to send out to the cells to instruct them how to turn these genes into proteins. Note of the magazine broadly speaking each type of messenger RNA corresponds to a single gene and by looking at these messengers the researchers could be certain they were recording active genes and not stretches of DNA that had once been genes but no longer work. Now if you're keeping score on the average the nematode worms had 173 horizontally transferred genes the fruit flies had 40 and primates had 109 at least on average, meaning that humans coming in at an 145 had more than the primate mean. Now you should note that many of these matches are to genes of unknown purpose. And some of these human transgenes are surprisingly familiar. For example, the ABO antigen system, which defines our blood types for transfusion purposes, they look like they came from bacteria. What's described as fat mass and obesity-associated genes appear to come from marine algae. And a group of our genes, which seems to be related to hyaluronic acid, originates in fungi. Now, hyaluronic acid is a name you may have run across. It's a chemical that's an important part of the glue, which holds all of our cells together and is not coincidentally a frequent ingredient of skin creams. And when you start looking at all these genes that we're expressing that apparently came from other species, it's pretty surprising. Sniff the magazine. This is quite a catalog. If anything similar were inserted by genetic engineers into corn or cattle, there would no doubt be an outcry. To which we would add, the magazine seems to be missing the point about what it really means if, say, Roundup-ready genes escape into wild weeds. We've talked about this in the show before, and we'll talk about it again. We'll certainly follow up on this question of uh, human beings picking up genes from other species in future shows. All right, another provocative science piece from the January 17th issue of, again, New Scientist, talks about um, a challenge to the idea... Then we think about evolution, we base it on the idea that a mutation takes place first and that organisms later adapt based on their changed genetics. Well, there may be a few other wrinkles involved in that plan. Article by Colin Barris expresses the notion that organisms may in fact adapt first and then mutate later. They start out talking about an experiment by an Emily Standen involving fish. In this case, Bishir fish that can live out of water. They can do this because in addition to having gills, they can also breathe air. Two years before our experiment, back in 2006, Tik Talik, the 360 million-year-old fossil fish, had given us an interesting look at how that transition may have been made onto land, and Stanton speculated that forcing these Bashir fish to live almost entirely on land might reveal more about this crucial step in our evolution. And indeed, during the experiment, these bishers did more than just survive. They became better at walking. They planted their fins closer to their bodies. They lifted their heads higher off the ground, and they slipped less than fish that were raised in water. Even more remarkably, their skeletons changed, too. Their shoulder bones lengthened, and they developed stronger contacts with the fin bones. It was noted that these features are uncannily reminiscent of those that occurred as our four-legged ancestors evolved from tik-talik-like forebearers. Now, they're not suggesting in this Lamarckian evolution, wherein an animal uh, develops certain traits and then passes that on to its offspring. We now know that that's basically not how evolution takes place, although with the rise of epigenetics, we now understand that things can be passed from one organism into offspring to a limited degree. We understand that the the basic driving force to evolutionary change remains mutations. Mutations. But this ability to have a certain plasticity or change in um, the physiology, which certain most animals, I would say probably all animals, have some flexibility in, does open the possibility that instead of seeing a mutation that produces a physical change in an offspring, for example, a mutation takes place in a fish so that its pectoral fins are a little bit stronger, allowing it to climb up onto land, what if instead... The fish gets forced to spend more time up on land, like in this experiment, and does well because of the plasticity in its physical response. It's able to survive in this sort of new environment. Well, if it can make a go of it, subsequent mutations, in essence, then, would fix these physical changes in place. So the article poses the question, could this plasticity in an animal's physiology allow it to evolve without evolving? As Emily Standen put it, at some point, can you remove the environmental conditions that induce the change, and have the organisms remain changed? And the answer, surprisingly, appears to be yes. They cite a 1950s experiment by British biologist Conrad Hal Wallington that showed if you took fruit flies and heated the pupa, the offspring would develop without cross veins in their wings. By then selecting out those flies without cross veins and breeding them together. Well, by the 14th generation, they lacked cross veins even if the pupa were not being heated anymore. A physical feature that began as a plastic response to an environmental trigger had become a hereditary feature. Waddington called this process he discovered genetic assimilation. The article notes it may sound like Lamarckian evolution. It's really not. These acquired characteristics don't shape the genetic changes directly, as Darwin once proposed might happen, wrongly. But they merely allow animals to thrive in environments that favor certain mutations when they then occur by chance. Interesting stuff. And if you're an evolutionary biologist and want to sound off on this, again, drop us a line at inforadioparallax.com. All right, the third scientific piece I want to summarize more quickly than the last two <laughs> is as follows. Cover story from New Scientist, February 21st issue, talks about white matter, the white stuff in our brains, and how, why it's not just your gray matter that counts. And I had to laugh at how they started the piece by Teal Burrell, noted that my friend's TV cable box went out recently. She was fiddling with the box, resetting, unplugging, replugging. When that failed, she called the cable company. They examined things at their end and came up short. Frustrated, she retreated to another room where she discovered that her cat had ripped out a piece of the wiring. It wasn't the ends of the wires that need fixing. It was the part in the middle. The piece notes, a similar revelation is underway in the neurosciences. It's noted that for years, changes in the brain, whether from learning to ride a bike, taking Prozac, or sinking into Alzheimer's, has been attributed to the activity of neurons and the smaller chemical junctions between them, the synapses. Targeting synapses is like fiddling with the connections at either end or calling the cable company. (laughs) Piece notes that ignoring the wiring in between may be a mistake. The piece notes that myelin, which is part of the white matter, the wrapping around uh, the fibers of your, of your neurons, can be boosted by stimulating the brain in various ways. Now, if we want to do a little basic biology, and we do, but only a very little, we would note that myelin is the fatty layer of insulation around your wires, around your nerve cells. It's produced by cells called oligodendrocytes. And the white matter, the part of our brain and spinal cord which is packed with myelin-covered axons, appears white because of the fat in the myelin. When scientists have bred mice that have trouble producing myelin through their oligodendrocytes, well, they also couldn't learn very well. So yes, it's not just your gray matter that counts. And I love the way they concluded the article talking about gray matter and white matter and their relative importance. They said, you got to keep learning. You got to keep your mind active. If you learn new things like a new piano piece, as well as keeping up with ordinary activities like taking a walk, especially if it's an unfamiliar route with changing scenery, well, that's all good. It's recommended that you embrace new hobbies. And if we had a lot more time, I'd talk about this article in a lot more detail, but we don't, so I won't. But really, dear listener, look it up and read it. It's pretty cool stuff. Final piece will come from the world of medicine. I was looking at an article in American Family Physician on the subject of cerumen impaction. That's when your ear fills up with wax. Because I want to, once again, point out to my listenership here at KDVS, KZFR, and on the web, that in spite of what you've been told, need not feel guilty about sticking that Q-tip in your ear to clean out the wax. Yes, this piece, like every piece written about earwax, tells you you should not use cotton swabs. And I've said it before and I'll say it again, this might be the stupidest piece of advice you will be given by a physician. If you ask your doctor and your nurse whether they use Q-tips to clean out their ears and they're honest about it, they'll tell you that they do. They just tell you not to do it because you might impact all the wax into your ear. But of course, in reality, I'm speaking from 30 years worth of experience in this type of reality, people's ears plug up with wax when they never clean them. I know this because I've cleaned out literally thousands of ears over the years. You know, I've been saying this for years in this program, hoping some ENT surgeon is going to challenge me on it, but nobody has yet. Please, will somebody fight with me about this? And of course, it's important to keep your ears clean so you can hear better and enjoy more of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.